Support for AHLA comes from Clearwater, the leading provider of enterprise cyber risk management and HIPAA compliance software and services for healthcare organizations, including health systems, physician groups, and health IT companies. Their solutions include their proprietary software as a service-based platform, IRM Pro, which helps organizations manage cyber risk and HIPAA compliance across the enterprise, and advisory support from their deep team of information security experts. For more information, visit clearwatercompliance.com. Hello and good day. My name is Adam Nunn. I'm a director with Clearwater. We are a cybersecurity and risk management compliance solutions company. We are exclusively focused on the healthcare industry. My team assists organizations in developing and managing their cybersecurity programs. We are here today to discuss the American Health Law Association article, Health Data Defense, Understanding Security Standards and Certifications. Today we have the authors of the article, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves here in a second, but we're glad to have this podcast um, to discuss this article. Uh, with that, Jayanne, I'm going to turn it over to you for introductions. Yeah, thanks, Adam. And uh, it's great to be with AHLA and, and getting an opportunity to talk a little bit more about our article um, and, and the topics today. So my name is Jayanne Chen. I'm a partner in the D.C. office of the law firm of McDermott, Will & Emery. Um, I advise a, a range of entities in the healthcare industry, including digital health companies, providers, payers, data companies, life sciences companies on a range of data privacy and data security matters, as well as research compliance matters and various strategic and, and commercial collaborations. Okay, thanks, Jayanne. Leanne? Thank you. Um, I too am happy to be here to have this discussion with you today. I um, am a partner at Best Best and Crager and in the Los Angeles office. Best Best and Crager is now a California based, but a regional firm that specializes with public entity clients. I have advised on HIPAA privacy and security for quite some time, actually, I think since um, the initial HIPAA rules were implemented. So my focus is primarily on working with um, healthcare entities, health plans, providers, and digital health and medical device companies on privacy and security issues. And I focus on um, healthcare privacy issues in California um, law primarily. Thanks, Leanne. Okay, Ty. Great, thanks, Adam, and thank you to AHLA for having us today. My name is Ty Kayam, and I'm part of the Health and Life Sciences legal team at Microsoft. Um, here, I am product counsel for our Health AI product suite. Um, I'm also involved in our global health digital, our global digital health policy initiatives, and I also do a bit of technology transactions within um, the digital health industry. Um, today, all viewpoints are my own, and they aren't affiliated with Microsoft or with any other organization that I'm affiliated with. Thanks, Ty. Okay, to kick off the podcast, we prepared several questions for the authors. In summary, the article discusses the key cybersecurity frameworks that are available, benefits of the frameworks, legal backgrounds of the frameworks, an overview of security certifications and standards, and security certification diligence. What the first question that we have is related to uh, most, the most recent update that I've seen across the frameworks, 
which is Public Law 116.321. This this law uh, basically amended the High Tech Act and requires HHS to consider if a covered entity or business associate implementation of recognized security practices when assessing enforcement actions for violations of the HIPAA security rule. How have regulated entities been approaching this so-called safe harbor? Have there been any developments as to how the Office of Civil Rights has been implementing this authority? Yeah, I'm happy to start here, Adam. So when we were putting together the article last year, we um, thought it was a, you know really important to kind of frame the discussion with the enactment of this law, which, which I'll refer to as H.R. 7898. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, it kind of provides the why here in, in many respects. So this is a law, as you mentioned, Adam, that amends the High Tech Act to essentially, uh, you know, provide the uh, HHS secretary the leeway to think about and consider the fact that a HIPAA-regulated entity adopted various recognized security practices in determining what enforcement activity or to what extent to take enforcement activity under the HIPAA security role. So it's enacted with the goal of encouraging HIPAA-regulated entities to do what they can to safeguard protected health information and is more of a carrot rather than a stick um, in, in its approach in facilitating the adoption of cybersecurity practices. Um, what's important to note uh, under this law is that it leaves things a bit open-ended as to what those recognized security practices will be. So there are two frameworks that are specifically called out in the law. One is the NIST cybersecurity framework, which we'll be discussing today as well as approaches implemented under Section 405D of the Cybersecurity Act. Those two frameworks per this law would constitute automatically a recognized security practice, but there are there is this catch-all reference in the law as well for other programs and processes that address cybersecurity that are uh, developed or promulgated through rulemaking or, or other statutory authorities. So since we published our article, which um, which was late last year, OCR um, did issue a request for information or RFI on this very topic. So they published it in April 6 of 2022. And one of the issues on which it solicits comment is how covered entities and BAs are implementing recognized security practices. What are security practices that they've been implementing? How are they demonstrating um, the implementation of security practices. So um, comments on that RFI closed on June 6, but um, it's you know indicative of the fact that OCR continues to think about um, what are the various standards or frameworks or certifications or other models that regulators should be thinking about when deciding how lenient, if at all, um, to be when assessing um, penalties or taking other enforcement actions under the security rule. So I don't know that there's a whole lot of publicly available information about how the agency has been taking into account this, um, I wouldn't call it a safe harbor. I think it's really more of just a um, authority that the agency has to think, uh, you know, to consider the implementation of recognized security practices. But we are, you know, aware of the fact that they continue to assess the best way to implement it. And we'll see, you know, if they 
issue any additional guidance or uh, engage in any notice and comment rulemaking under the statute in, in order to provide stakeholders with more certainty or more um, you know, information around how the agency is going to be implementing this authority. I would just like to, you know, add on to that in that, you know, OCR has long looked to NIST as a as a as a cybersecurity framework. For example, for for many years it's it's crosswalked the security standards to NIST. So I think this formalizes it that um, intent, um, adding, of course, 405D. But I think that the, you know, the, the elephant in the room, the big remaining issue is going to be implementation and what constitutes adequate implementation. And, and, um, and in that case, when will um, covered entities or business associates actually be um, um, receiving uh, more limited enforcement for their use of this framework. Because as we know many times, entities do implement frameworks. I mean, they do adopt frameworks, but there's uh, a glitch in their implementation. I, I think that's right, Leanne. And the other thing that I would add too is, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that they issue the RFI because I'm sure they will receive probably a lot of comments in this regard, but there are, as we know, you know, other uh, frameworks and certifications and standards that healthcare entities have, um, you know, also frequently adopted. High trust, you know, SOC 2s, ISO, for example, ones that we talk about in the article, some of them are proprietary. And I, I think that's probably one reason why they weren't, um, you know, expressly included in the statute. Um, is because, you know, NIST and 405D, those approaches are publicly available. Um, so I wonder if that was one consideration as well. But I imagine that regulated entities under HIPAA are probably eager, um, not only for more guidance as to how to demonstrate, as you say, that they've implemented those practices, but also, you know, for those that have gone, undergone high trust certification or, um, you know, um, been assessed for compliance with, you know, the ISO 27000 family of standards, I'm sure they would love to be able to take advantage or at least argue that, you know, they should be afforded more leniency in the event of any violation of the security rule. Right. And it may be that they would argue that in an audit resulting from a data breach, again, that they would um, perhaps have some reduction in their burden. Um, we shall see. It will be interesting. Yep. Jayan, you talked a little bit about uh, a certification and standard and framework. Can we spend some time talking about the difference between those three uh, domains of and how organizations might be pursuing those? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the, the, the names are somewhat self-explanatory, but I do think there's a, you know, fair amount of overlap as between a framework and a standard. I, I even just sometimes see, you know, the ISO family of standards sometimes also referred to as a framework. So I don't know that there's a universal, um, you know, recognition or alignment on what distinguishes a standard from a framework. But um, I do think that certifications are uh, distinguishable in that regard. And as we talk about in the article, 
not all of the ones that we discuss or that are available and commonly used by healthcare organizations and companies are certifications. High trust is one and ISO is another. Those are, you know, um, uh, sort of standards and requirements against which organizations can be evaluated. And, you know, then they have something nice and shiny to show to customers or third parties or others to demonstrate their adherence to those standards. Um, but there are others like, you know, NIST um, that doesn't involve any certification or assessment aside from one that maybe that entity would do um, on their own internally. And I think in that regard, those frameworks are more intended to be, um, you know, flexible resources that organizations can use to uh, build the components of a robust cybersecurity uh, program that's reflective of their size and sophistication and the risks and vulnerabilities that apply to their, their organization and their data and kind of serves as a foundation for them to then, you know, plug and play uh, various safeguards and controls as that organization evolves over time. Um, so I don't know, Ty, if you have any early on, any yeah. additional thoughts there? No, Jayan, you're absolutely right that there isn't a standard definition for the three, but I think a good way to think about it is a, a framework is essentially, you know, a set of standards, guidelines, practices, you name it, on how to manage a security program. Um, and it talks about developing and documenting security processes when things of that nature. A standard, on the other hand, is, is usually published. It's a very prescriptive specification. Um, it can be technical in nature, and it gives you the precise criteria to, to do something. And it's designed to be more um, like a rule or a guideline to have a bit of consistency among, um, uh, with it. And lastly, certification is, you know, as you point out, exactly what it means. Um, you are typically certified via an audit or, you know, some sort of third party coming in and, and assessing whether you match certain criteria or meet certain criteria, and you're issued a certification. Um, and, and really where it gets complicated is that um, NIST and ISO produce standards that integrate frameworks. While you know, SOC and High Trust are certifications, and High Trust uh, can also be a framework. So it, it's it makes sense that they're sort of used interchangeably. But that's you know, uh, at least in the industry, that's the distinction between the three of them. Just going, uh, I live in these frameworks every day, and and the more I do, the the more I appreciate and value four or five D because it talks about small, medium, and large organizations, and specifically what it's looking for. Um, so related to security certification, um, can you talk a little bit about the diligence process performed by covered entities or business associates or vendors? Sure, I'd be happy to jump into that. And, and certainly we can talk, talk more about the, specific, the, specific, the specifics of these um, standards and, and audits and frameworks. But in terms of the due diligence performed by covered entities and business associates, what I generally see is kind of a three-pronged approach. And, and I would say that this approach is not just covered entities and business associates, it's also being used now for PHI, but also PII, um, other types of inform regulated information, GDPR information. And so it's kind of expanding beyond healthcare. But first of all, there will be a security assessment. And typically that will be a questionnaire. And that questionnaire varies considerably in, in the amount of detail. 
I have seen security questionnaires that have been given to a vendor as part of the due diligence process that actually include a question on each of the NIST um, standards and controls. And they're specifically, it's specifically aligned with NIST 800.53, for example. And it's many, many pages. So you might be asked for a profile of your organization, a description of the data you have, and you actually might be asked to go through this very lengthy questionnaire and answer every um, and answer questions from the contracting organization. That's that's one component. A second component is that organizations may want you to conduct um, penetration testing um, with, for example, third-party provider on an annual basis, and may ask to receive the results of that. Um, and the third part of the um, diligence is that uh, typically um, organizations may also request that you provide an audit or certification of your compliance with um, whatever rate the regulatory requirements are, it be they HIPAA, be it the PCI DSS standards for um, credit card data or whatever it may be. So, um, they may request um, audits um, on an annual basis, a biannual basis, or whatever it may be. And I think that what we're, what I'm seeing anyway, is that because of the, you know, length of these questionnaires, that organizations are are really trying to move toward um, using certifications or assessment reports that are generated by their audits to um, address, you know, regulatory compliance. You know, different organizations have different ways of approaching it. Some like to be very consistent across the board on, on how they ask for and, and respond to security um, assessments or uh, questionnaires. Uh, while others take a more, you know, ad hoc as needed approach, some have elaborate teams built out, others use, you know, online portals or tools for this. Um, and there's no one model that, you know, that's used consistently. It's usually organization dependent uh, based on the needs of the organization. Yeah, and the, the other thing that I would add too is that, um, you know, especially in the customer vendor context you sometimes have situations right where the entity that is conducting the diligence so oftentimes the customer is going to ask for a copy of that you know vendor organization's um you know report or or risk assessment and the the battle then becomes well you know vendor doesn't want to share a copy of the whole report and then um you know they're, they're kind of at an impasse and so one of the things that we oftentimes see is an approach where the vendor will you know, agree to provide some sort of executive summary or more distilled um, overview of the results of the assessment and perhaps a you know contractual commitment to remedy you know certain um, you know deficiencies or other issues that were identified in the report. And there's a timeline and you know milestones for that, but. That's just in my experience been you know another area where you see a lot of back and forth between the parties. That's very true, and obviously, in many cases, those um, questionnaires are 
shared only under an undisclosure agreement. Um, as you noted, Cheyenne, there's considerable discussions about how much information will be shared. Um, sometimes customers will ask to do their own penetration testing and so forth, which is, is generally something that um, uh, covered entities or business associates reject. And um, these requirements are typically also included in, in contract terms with regards to data, which is also you know, something that the um, organizations will negotiate. I think you maybe add that sometimes the, the type of assessment could also be dependent on the technology at hand. While some may lend themselves well to penetration testing or having more in-depth investigation, in other you know, types of technologies or industries, allowing that or allowing numerous entities to, to do penetration testing, you know, take tours of data centers, you name it, could in and of itself be a, a security issue. And so, it, it, again, it is always dependent on the organization itself. Yeah, we've we've come a long way from just relying on uh, a business associate agreement. <laughs> uh, we're doing audits to this depth, right? Um, it seems to be an ever-changing uh, process. So with, with all of the common frameworks that are available, right, and, and different focus domains, um, you know, we have FDA, digital health, payers and providers and business associates. What are the most common frameworks that these industries choose? There is a HIM survey from um, a couple of years ago that showed, you know, what's used predominantly within the healthcare industry. About 57% or 60% used NIST, about 26% used HITRUST, um, you had 18% used, uh, used ISO, um, and really 16% used no framework whatsoever um, and had their own uh, way of approaching it. So it, there's no, you know, clear delineation by type of entity and you know the type of certification or framework that they would use um, but a lot of times it's it's dependent on you know the costs associated with certain certifications for example NIST is free which is probably why or it's, it's a you know publicly available uh, framework which is why a lot of organizations particularly smaller organizations elect to use that um, some organizations that want a bit more robust structure might use might use high trust because it incorporates uh, some of the NIST standards, um, the ISO 27001 standard. Um, it, it builds in the HIPAA security rules, so it's a bit more comprehensive. Um, but and it just depends on the needs of the the organization. Um, and we are really for this discussion focusing on information security and data protection. But you know, beyond that, there are different frameworks or different standards that exist in, in healthcare industry as a whole. You could have, you know, the fire standard as an example, which is standard developed by standard development organizations. Um, the FDA in various guidance documents relating to pre-market or post-market management of cybersecurity um, talks about how manufacturers have to develop you know, instead of traceable cybersecurity controls, um, the FDA also publishes a list of recognized consensus standards. Um, so there's a big world of standards and frameworks out there for organizations to consider. Uh, Leanne, Diane, anything you want to add? Yeah, I would like to just add, I think also in the life sciences industry, 
you'll see um, the ISO standards are often um, 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 maybe the, the standard that's followed, for, for example, for a medical device company. Um, it also is often the case that, you know, depending on the nature of the company, that they may actually have to comply with several different standards. So let's say if we take a, a medical device manufacturer, they may follow the ISO standards and will present documentation of that to the FDA. If they're a business associate of certain covered entities, they're um, going to want to have a HIPAA compliance profile. So they're going to um, use the NIST standards, for example. And I think that um, with regards to high trust, you know, the um, which is, you know, the high trust is um, high trust is a private nonprofit organization and it uses a common security framework, right? And this common security framework was de designed to align with NIST, with HIPAA high tech, with PCI DCS, ISO, as you noted, and GDPR, for example. But one of the reasons that organizations, uh, and it is proprietary, and there certainly is a cost associated with using this framework, but um, it, it does a couple of different things. It, it provides um, different levels of assessment for the organization. It also provides the ability to report, for example, to generate reports that um, relate to these different sets of standards with um, kind of the same input and the same policies. Um, you know, whereas high trust is, um, there's a assessment that's a self-attestation and there's a validation assessment, which is conducted by third parties. It again is, is um, I understand that high trust is also working with the um, American Institute of Certified Public Accountants to support SOC 2 reporting based on this common security framework. But all of these things, including a SOC 2 audit map to multiple standards. So they all map to NIST and ISO. And so really in part, it's a question of what works for the organization and what is most, um, what, what are they required to do from a regulatory standpoint? And, and then what is the most efficient for the organization to do with regards to demonstrating compliance with these standards? Um, and I noted regulatory, but there's also regulatory and contractual requirements. So what are they required to do and what's most efficient for their organization with regards to demonstrating compliance with various standards? Yeah, I think Ann, you, you raise a great point about the mappings, which is um, you know, certainly helpful to the, the organizations and companies themselves because they can, you know, as they're perhaps, you know, a younger company just starting to build out their cybersecurity program, they can compare and contrast and see, you know, common threads and what, for example, um, you know, going through high trust would get them as compared to, you know, just doing a SOC 2 audit or, you know, following the NIST cybersecurity framework. Um, and they can hopefully make a more informed decision as to, to, how to go about building that cybersecurity program. And I think it's also helpful insofar as 
if they have followed one particular framework or set of standards, those mappings also help them understand, you know, how not to start from scratch if they do decide to implement, um, you know, a different framework in the future. Right, and there's a lot of overlap between like ISO and NIST. Um, there really is considerable overlap. So um, organizations can customize that to the, to the, customize the additional policies they require, the additional procedures and so forth to the extent applicable. And I also believe that you can obtain a SOC 2 audit and you can focus it on NIST standards or ISO standards as you need or desire, which will then of course um, indicate your compliance. Because the audit, unlike the frameworks, is really an assessment of how effectively have you implemented these controls. That's a great point. And it's a challenge that, you know, we face on a regular basis. And it's kind of interesting. In some cases with uh, my customers, right, we may have one data set about the control status of, of, of security controls. And I've got from that one data set, one report going out for regulatory compliance purposes, another report going to a private equity partner that's focused on NIST, right? another report going to a different private equity partner focused on a different standard. I've got another report going out to a customer for their expectations and even maybe one going to the insurer now, the cybersecurity insurance policyholder. So it, it's really becoming quite a spaghetti of, of mappings across the frameworks. With that, the as we know, the NIST cybersecurity framework is aligned for all critical infrastructure. 405D referenced in HR 7898 is part of the Cybersecurity Act of 2015. It's specific to the healthcare industry. And one of the things it does, it establishes uh, accepted and necessary practices for small, medium, and large organizations. Um, I see that um, often my clients are looking at that. They're trying to understand what that means. It's so new. Can you provide any input on how organizations might discern if 405D might be an acceptable target framework for baseline controls? Yeah, I'm happy to start with that and Leanne and Ty, please feel free to chime in. Um, you know, as you noted, Adam, one of the key distinguishing features of the 405D approach is that it is you know, health industry specific, right? It was developed with, um, you know, the input of so many stakeholders and, and healthcare and health IT and, and public health. And when you take a look at the um, you know, uh, the, the materials that were developed pursuant to 405D, my, you know, impression is that it, it is designed to be sort of, um, you know, digestible and, and usable and it's user-friendly and perhaps a little bit less, I would say, technical um, than, than the NIST uh, cybersecurity framework, which uh, is not health-specific, although as Leah noted, it is um, adopted quite frequently uh, by healthcare organizations. Um, I do think it's very useful that the 405D um, you know, approaches do sort of come in different flavors for small, medium, and large organizations. 
in some regard, that is similar to the the you know NIST cybersecurity framework, which you know does have this notion of implementation tiers and and profiles. So you can kind of again situate yourself within um, those frameworks and figure out you know where am I currently? You know where would I need to go to achieve a certain level of compliance with those frameworks? So I think as uh, you know, you're assessing, for example, whether to go with 405D or uh, the cybersecurity framework. Um, I would recommend just, you know, starting by by looking at the two and um, seeing what is manageable and um, evaluating whether, you know, a certain kind of framework is going to resonate more with, you know, the, the kinds of customers or other third parties that uh, that you're going to be working with. And I think um, also finally one thing to note is that with the NIST cybersecurity framework, it is, um, you know, in, in some ways going to be um, resonate more with entities that are maintaining, for example, data from the federal government, if they have federal contracts or awards, um, you know, that might be another reason why, uh, you know, they would want to go with the, the NIST framework instead. Well, thanks, Jayan. Um, that's very helpful, especially when you're talking about interacting with, you know, the federal government entities and, or supporting those, um, and helping that align your focus towards more than NIST standards. Um, you know, as, as part of when we look at uh, HR 789A, you know, part of the language that, that I believe it contained was about framework adoption, right? And what framework adoption means. And I know it's been, this has been discussed on other AHLA podcasts as well, um, but more and more each day, you know, uh, Regulators, insurers, uh, customers are, are more asking, what does it mean to, to adopt a framework? Um, a lot of times I see customers try to define a program charter that is aligned to a specific framework. They may establish a security oversight committee that you know provides um, guidance related to their compliance with that. They may try to measure the, the current state of where they're at and define that target profile or target state. Um, they may develop strategic roadmaps that are multi-year, um, again, defined towards a specific framework. And, and they do all this and to try to towards, uh, you know, comply with framework adoption. Um, does anybody have any thoughts on what it might mean, what framework adoption might mean, and how uh, organizations can show that they're pursuing adoption of the framework? I'll start out with this, and, and then maybe Ty or Cheyenne can add on, but you know, when I look at framework adoption, this is adoption of, of an approach. And if you look at NIST, for example, it has a security framework, I believe, and it also has um, um, standards that are established in publications like 800.53, which set out the specific controls. So a framework is uh, what the organization is going to align with and how it's going to approach its security and information technology um, assessment and system. So that's maybe the guiding framework. But then when you're talking about implementing that framework, you are, are going to have to implement by means of controls. And those controls are going to have to be referenced in policies. And those policies are going to be looked at when, for example, an organization is audited. So, and when I say audited, I mean audited by a regulatory entity. 
So what I've advised and, and um, for clients who are going to potentially be facing OCR audits someday or maybe as they implement a framework and their policies, that those policies should reference the specific controls and the framework that they um, have adopted. So their policies should not just be general IT security policies, but if they're implementing a NIST or a NIST and ISO framework, those um, policy, policies should reference the specific controls. And that I think demonstrates implementation. Obviously the policies and procedures are a further demonstration. I mean, the procedures that implement those policies are a further demonstration. I think that, you know, another way to look at it, and I look at it kind of from the back end when an organization is getting audited, even as, a, as an attorney more than on the front end where, a, you know, an IT consultant might look at this, for example. But even if you have, you know, a, a single set of policies, I often think it's useful if you're going to, going through an audit from the Office of Civil Rights to be able to generate a set of policies that's organized according to the HIPAA security framework or the NIST guidelines. And likewise, if you're being audited under a different framework that you're able to generate the policies in a structure that aligns with that framework. So I think those are just a couple of the, the ways that you can show that you are implement have implemented these frameworks and their controls and the associated controls and that you're aligned to them. But I welcome Ty or Cheyenne if you have some other thoughts. Or I, was good. I think you kind of set us up really well for uh, for a lawyer joke with your comment about um, you know presenting all the policies in a way that you know maps closely to to regulatory standards. We we like everything you know neatly presented on a platter, right? And I'm, I'm, I know regulators certainly do, and I I totally agree that um, it's it's certainly to the advantage of the organization to have those those internal maps and inventories that really um, clearly um, and distinctly, um, you know, show how their various policies and procedures align with, um, you know, the, the frameworks or the standards that they uh, have purportedly implemented. Um, nothing, you know, like that, there, there's nothing else that really, you know, sort of quickly checks the box there in the, in the context of a regulatory audit or even an audit or an assessment by, uh, by a third party like a customer or, or a collaborator. Right. The one thing you don't want is questions. And you also know that the person who's looking at it, if you're talking about an audit by the Office for Civil Rights, for example, is not necessarily an IT um, professional or an auditor of the type that you would find in a SOC 2 audit that's very familiar with all the privacy and risk framework. So um, at any rate, so you certainly want to minimize any questions and be very clear with respect to those, um, the implementation of stand, the applicable standards, you know, always looking to the regulator. Okay, um, lots of good discussion here. I thought the article was, was well written and, and covered a, a wide variety of frameworks and certification practices and 
for those of us that are in the weeds implementing, always we're, we're looking for as much guidance as, as we can. Um, is there anything else anybody would like to add before we uh, before we close out? No, thanks for thanks for leading a great discussion, Adam. Thank you so much for having us. It's a very, very good discussion. Thank you, Leanne, uh, Jan, and Ty. Um, we, uh, it, was a, it was a great discussion. Uh, we appreciate your contributions uh, to the article and the realm of security standards and certifications. Uh, to the audience, thank you for joining. Uh, we've enjoyed putting this together for your use. We wish you the best in your cybersecurity standards and certification journeys. Uh, thank you and good day. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.